um, I'll invite Mikey up at, um, before I, he comes up. I'd just like to pray um, for him uh, and for the kids that are going out into their programs. Let's bow with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this morning um, we have an opportunity to meet together. Uh, and it could have likely been uh, two services, Lord, this week, but we have been able to come together and, and join in fellowship. And I pray, Lord, for uh, Mikey as he comes and speaks with us. I pray that you would uh, bless uh, the words that he speaks and they would be from uh, your word, Lord, uh, and they would echo into our hearts and our, our lives and transform the way uh, we look at you uh, and we relate to you and we worship you. So I pray for uh, him this morning that you... Uh, Bless his words and, and the people in the ministries with ch- young children, Lord, we pray that you would um, yeah, comfort them uh, and those little ones would grow up uh, to be glorifying you with their lives and um, learn the importance of uh, honouring you and worshipping you, Lord. So thank you, Lord, for this time. We bless uh, this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mikey. Thank you, bro. Good morning. Um, if you have your Bibles... Uh, and I hope you do, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're looking this morning at the church at the letter to the church at Pergamum. Uh, so that's verse 12. Um, so there are seven, seven churches that there are letters to here. These are words spoken by Jesus himself. John has a revelation of Jesus. Um, Yeah, it's quite unique in Scripture because I know all of Scripture is God's Word, but this is specifically the words of Jesus. And I don't know if it carries any more weight, but um, this is Jesus who walks among the churches, knows exactly what the churches are going going through, and speaks directly to each church according to the issue that it's dealing with. And I think the same principle can be drawn here, that Jesus is amongst us as a church. He knows the things that are going on in our church in the 21st century. Um, And my prayers I've been praying for the sermon is that um, he would speak to us as a church today with the issues that relate to us. Um, so as we look through Pergamum, keep that in mind. The city of Pergamum, uh, just to give a bit of context, it's, a, um, it's an advanced city. So it's like the Auckland of New Zealand. It's the leading city. It's a capital city. It's one that is very intellectual. So a lot of the intellectual stuff that it came out of that se- the first century came out from Pergamum. Um, It's a city where business leaders were there, politicians were there. It's a city where if you were there, you were someone who was very advanced in what you were doing. Um, As a result of that, it meant that it was a city dominated by uh, idols and by temples, dominated by Greco-Roman gods, and that is a huge issue for the city, as we will see. This is how Jesus describes the city of Pergamum. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Who wants to be at that church in a city where Satan dwells? It's not only where he dwells, his throne is there. So so the idea that you rule from your throne, so the rule that Satan has on the entire world is coming from the city of Pergamon. This is where he has power and the Christians in the church in Pergamon are dwelling in the same city alongside Satan. You notice that despite this, the church has not denied the name of Christ. I don't think this is talking about here just uh, in relation to the Greco-Roman gods and the temple of Zeus or the temple of Athena or the temple of these various gods, because a lot of cities had that. The difference with Pergamum is that it had what was called the imperial cult. And the imperial cult is the, the worship of the emperor. So in the same way that in those days you would go to a temple and you would worship the god of Zeus, 
uh, there was a temple set up in Pergamum where you would go and you would worship the living emperor and you would have to bow down and declare that he was Lord, that Caesar was Lord. There were huge social, social ramifications if you did not do this. Um, Alan spoke last week about parades that went through the city and you were expected to go out and bow down to the parade and, and worship of the emperor as they went past. And if you didn't, you suffered social stigma, you were persecuted, you were put in prison. The same sort of thing happens here in Pergamum, where if you did not go to the temple and worship uh, Caesar as Lord, huge costs. We know that there was heaps of persecution. Uh, one person even died to Antipas is described as someone who, who was martyred. It's said that he was burnt alive in a bronze bull. So that's a pretty horrific way to go, if there is a way to go. And and yet, despite this, despite that threat, this church did not deny the name of Jesus. As we move further into the letter, we see that there are problems in this church. But keep in mind that this is a church that in the most extreme sense did not deny Jesus as Lord and held fast to their faith in him. And if I was to, to think of Hukunui as a church and to generalize here, I, I would say that as a church, we would be similar to that. We don't have that kind of testing in New Zealand, thankfully. But I would say, as I look around at a lot of you who I know, that, that we would not be a church, I hope, that would deny the name of Christ if persecution arose in New Zealand. So there are similarities here. And the big thing, the Church of Pergamum had stuck to their faith. This was not a wishy-washy church. This was a church that was serious about their faith to the utmost of persecutions. So keep that in mind. But Jesus has a few problems against it. So let us keep reading verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. So a few different factors in that verse, a few different things that are happening. What I want to do in this sermon is, is not traditionally give you a three-part sermon, but sort of create uh, the framework to understand the application here. There are a lot of different components here. Uh, the story of Balaam, the Nicolaitans, what does food sacrifice to idols mean in that culture? I sort of want to address each of these issues to sort of build the framework through which we can understand what the application is for this church and then how we can transfer it to the 21st century. Um, if we begin with the story of Balaam, it's a story in the Old Testament in Numbers 22 to 25. Some of you may know it. Balaam was a prophet, a prophet of God in some senses, because he only spoke what God would tell him to speak. The Israelites have come out of, come out of Egypt, and they're in the stage where they're wandering in circles in the desert, uh, not able to enter the promised land. They're there for 40 years. They come and they camp on the plains of Moab. So Balak is the king of Moab. He, he sees that they're camping right outside his territory. And he's afraid. So he goes to Balaam and says, would you please curse them? Because I'm afraid that they're going to come and destroy us as a nation. Balaam three times does not curse them, but every time blesses Israel because God uh, does not let him curse them. But the thing about Balaam is that he, he was greedy and he wanted money. And later on, we're told that Balaam behind the scenes went and gave advice to Balak and told Balak to seduce um, the Israelites and, and uh, put a stumbling block before them. So what uh, he told Balak to do is, is get your Midianite woman, your Moabite woman, and get them to draw the Israelites to come to a festival, eat the food sacrificed to your gods of Moab, 
and indulge in sexual immorality with you, used the Moabite woman to seduce the Israelite men away, and it worked. I don't know how many of the Israelite men went away, but uh, a lot of them did. We know that Israel's caliber to stay loyal to God was not very high in that season. Um, And as a result, we know that 24,000 men died in a single day because God sent a plague. Balaam's advice to Balak had destroyed the people of Israel. And that is the teaching that Jesus likens the teaching that's happening in the church at Pergamum to. That's what he likens it to. So Balaam uh, taught to put um, the stumbling block of food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality before the Israelites. And the same thing was happening in the church. So I don't know what, when you think of sexual immorality, that's one of the issues. We're like, okay, that's, that's clear in our culture. We get that. that. That's an issue. We think of food sacrifice to idols. I guarantee that most of us would think, okay, well, that's irrelevant. It's not an issue for us. I don't think there's a worry that you are going to go out this week and, and I don't know, uh, eat uh, some pork that's been offered to some God. I don't think that's a worry for us as a church. But if we put ourselves back in that cultural situation, this is a huge issue for the New Testament church. Huge issue. It's in multiple places across the New Testament. Um, The culture at the time. What you would do is if you lived in a city like Pergamum, lived in a city like Corinth, lived in a Greco-Roman city, you would worship some god. So you would take uh, a bull, take an ox, take a a lamb, whatever you wanted to take, and you would go to the temple of, say, Athena. And, And you go to Athena and you offer the bull and the priest sacrifices it to the god. You would get some of the meat but a majority of the meat would stay with the temple. Uh, Half of that, the temple would sell to the marketplaces. So if you lived in the city, in the same way that we get all our meat from the supermarket or from the butchers, in that city, you would go to the marketplace to get your meat. And most of that meat would come from the temples and come from the meat that had been offered to the gods of various different temples. The other part of the meat would, would remain in the temple for revenue because the temple functioned in the same way that a restaurant or a cafe or a bar functions for us in our culture. So back then in those houses, they, they didn't have large seating areas. At most, if you had a rich house, you could seat nine to 10 people. And, and you might have an atrium at your house if you're very rich and, and you could maybe seat 20 to 30, but that's not at a table, that's just lounging around. If you wanted to go out for a meal of any, with any size group, the place that you would go is the temple. Uh, they had taverns, but taverns were for the low class, for the rough class of society. You didn't want to go there. So if we put it into what it actually looked like, um, if you went to a funeral, if you went to a, a wedding reception, if you went to a family reunion, all of those would be held at the temple. If you, had, um, if you were in business or if you were in politics, all your politics meetings, all your legal meetings, all your business meetings, they would be held at the temple in the same way that we might catch up with someone in a cafe. They didn't have cafes. They went to the temple. Um, If you had a social gathering, so you wanted to hang out with your social group, the place where you would go on a Friday night or a Saturday night is to the temple. You wouldn't stay at people's houses because they weren't big enough for that. You start to see the implications of what it means to be a Christian and not go to the temple. Suddenly, huge parts of your life are taken away. Um, It it came way... uh, in the area of entertainment, so the entertainment for them back then would be the theater or would be the Olympic Games or something like those Olympic Games. Um, at the start of those, there would be a bull offered to a god. So every part of entertainment was surrounded by this uh, thought of idolatry and sacrifice to the Roman gods, and you would eat that meat while you were there. 
So the issue of food sacrifice to idols is huge in this culture. That's what I want you to see. It's not just a, oh, okay, we won't do it. That's fine. It's a, okay, if I don't do it, I might lose my job. I may not be able to be in business. I will have social stigma from people. I'll lose all my social relations. How am I supposed to even do life if I cannot go to the temple? Okay, can you start to see the, the um, magnitude of this issue? In terms of how the New Testament teaches it, it's quite a nuanced answer. Um, you may take some verses and just say, oh, well, they can't eat idols at all. If uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 goes through a long argument there, and it's a far more nuanced argument. It's not this, and it's, uh, it's not don't do it completely or do it completely. There are different facets of it. And what I want to do this morning is something different than we generally do when you're preaching. Um, Generally, we take a little part of, of Scripture and, and expound on it and sort of expand it. What I want to do is take a large portion of Scripture and go through it as an overview to see the theme, to see Paul's argument, not at a deep level, but just getting his argument across those three chapters. And so I'd like you to turn there with me um, to 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. Some of you may be thinking, that sounds very tedious. I, I ask that you bear with me in that. Um, I would love you to engage with the text as well. So if you have a Bible, would you read along with me and see Paul's argument unfold? See the different verses that I read. See for yourself whether you agree with this, whether you disagree with this, because the implications for Paul's teaching are huge for us today. Okay, so, so bear in mind that there is an application for us today. This isn't just looking at something that's irrelevant. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, I'll read the verses, but as best as you can, see if you can look at the person next to you. Um, look at their Bible and follow along as we go through. There's great advantage sometimes in looking at a text in those letters. They were designed to be read in large sections, not just individual verses. And sometimes it's really helpful to see the overview of a chapter. Um, one comment on 1 Corinthians just before we start is that this is actually the second letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, in the first letter, we don't have it, so it's a bit confusing. So this is really second and third Corinthians. Um, the first letter, Paul is likely given a really explicit command around food sacrifice to idols. But the Corinthian church, given that it's a city very, very similar to Pergamum, has written back and said, this can't be right, Paul. I disagree with you. There's no way that I can even live in this culture. Surely there must be some way for me to uh, partake in, in the worship of idols or go to the temple because how else am I supposed to live? And they've likely given arguments in that. So as you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that there are phrases such as, all of us possess knowledge or all things are beneficial for me. They're actually phrases that the Corinthian church has written back to Paul and Paul is taking and refuting. Just a bit of context here because at the start of chapter eight, we see one of these here. So let us begin already in 1 Corinthians chapter eight, verse one. Now concerning food that is offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Drop down to verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. To start with, Paul makes a statement. Yes, all of us possess knowledge. We know that there's nothing behind an idol. There's nothing behind the God of Zeus. Zeus doesn't exist. There's nothing behind the God of Athena. Athena doesn't exist, right? We agree with that. There's only one God, God the Father, and one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul's saying, you have this knowledge, right? What about the weaker brother who doesn't have this knowledge? Very, very similar to what Sam spoke about two weeks ago. What about someone who doesn't have this knowledge? So you might eat food sacrificed to idols. You don't think it's associated with idolatry. That's fine for you. You're right, technically. 
But what about the weaker brother who sees you doing that? They see you eating food sacrificed to idols. Then they go and eat food in the temple of Zeus. They're committing idolatry because for them it's real and you are causing them to be destroyed. There is real harm for other people if you do this in your uh, confidence or in your knowledge that you have. So Paul begins his argument softly, not appealing to them directly, but saying, think of other people and saying, think of love. So for the sake of the love of your brother, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. That's chapter eight. At the end of chapter eight, he moves into teaching like a rabbi. So at the start of chapter nine, he begins teaching like a rabbi and using his own example. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? Um, and he goes into this argument saying, I am an apostle. I have these rights as an apostle. I can, I can charge. I can take a wife along with me. I can do these things. But for the sake of the gospel, I have sacrificed quite a few things. And he lists his own life as the things that he has given up. So now he's saying, yeah, you can uh, do it for the sake of love, but you also need to give it up for the sake of the gospel. And this theme that comes through here is that fruit requires sacrifice. If you want to see fruit in your life, you need to be willing to sacrifice some things. And if you want to see a growing in your relationship with God, you need to be willing to sacrifice some things. And he's teaching from his own life here. But as he teaches, and we're not going to go through it. This is just an overview of chapter 9. But at the end of chapter 9, there's a shift. So I'm going to read this verse. So turn, look at 9 verse 24 with me. This is a well-known verse, but it's in the context of food sacrificed to idols. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So, so he uses athletic imagery. Um, I don't know if you're a runner. I like to dabble in running. I can relate to the idea of running aimlessly, running once or twice a week and seeing myself steadily get less fit and less fit. He's saying, don't do that. The athletes who do to get the prize, that they discipline their body. Because for them to win, they need to discipline their body. We do it for a far greater reason. They do it to receive a gold medal, a wreath, temporary. We do it for something imperishable. And then he starts, he says this last thing. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is his first warning here, that it's not only for the sake of others that you should do this. It's not only for the sake of the gospel, but it's also for your own sake. Because there is a danger and being involved with food sacrifice to idols and idolatry that could potentially disqualify you and destroy your faith. He's starting to introduce this theme, and it's this theme that he expands on in chapter 10. You notice across these three chapters, he started soft, and he's getting more and more clear. Because the Corinthian church, this is a huge and complex issue. Often, Paul will just explicitly say it outright in other letters, but here he doesn't. He builds up to it. So stick with me. Please stick with me. Chapter 10. <sighs> The first four verses, he's, he's drawn from his own example. He draws to the example of the Israelites. We already heard this morning of the story of Balaam, where the Israelites were seduced um, and then 24,000 of them were destroyed. He draws on these examples. What he begins by doing is he's saying, you at the church at Corinth, and the same for us at the church at Hukunui here, we are similar to the Israelites. Um, many of you have been baptized. 
He starts by saying they were baptized in a similar way when they went through the Red Sea. Uh, this morning, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper, drinking, uh, eating the bread and drinking the cup. They did a similar thing in the wilderness when they ate manna and when they drank um, from the rock and the rock was Christ. That's his argument that he starts making. In verse five, follow me here. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do you get his argument here? What he's saying is that similar to you. You you partake in spiritual things. They did as well, but they were destroyed because they went and were involved in idolatry. They turned away from God by committing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols, and it destroyed them. He gives four examples of when it destroyed them. Okay. And it's interesting, this is just a wee tangent, but a verse that we're probably quite familiar with is 10 verse 13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That comes in the context of food sacrifice to idols of the Corinthian church facing this huge temptation. Now that he said this, he's drawn from his own example, the example of the Israelites. This is the point he's been trying to make for two and a half chapters. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This word flee is the word fuga. Um, the idea from, we get the word fugitive from it. Um, a fugitive fleeing for his life. Flee from your life from idolatry. Stay as far away from it as possible. Look down to me at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. We know that an idol is nothing. There's nothing behind the God of Zeus, nothing behind the God of Athena. But I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. There's nothing behind the idol. The idol doesn't exist, but behind it as a whole, there is this demonic power that is there that is seeking to destroy your faith and disqualify you in your faith. So realize the danger that's behind it. He says, I don't want you to participate in, uh, with demons. So if we look at communion, he gives the example that we are going to drink the cup of the Lord and we're going to do that this morning. But he says, don't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons as well. Don't come and take communion on a Sunday morning and then go down the road on a Tuesday and, and eat in the temple to Zeus. In the same way, don't eat the bread and then go down to the temple of Athena and, and worship there as well. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? That's his argument. He doesn't want them to be participants with demons. But it leaves a question. He finishes practically, and we're just going to quickly go through this, so keep with me. Verse 25, he says, Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Right? If you're in the marketplace, you don't know where the meats come from. The idols don't possess the meat. You are fine to eat meat. So for us today, we don't have to worry, or I think we don't have to worry about if meat's been offered to um, a God of some sort, because that's not the issue here. The issue is if you take that and then go and eat in the temple itself and are involved in the worship of the God there. In the same way, if, one of, if you go to an unbeliever's house and you eat dinner there and they put before you a lovely pork meal, don't raise a question about it. Just eat it. It's fine. But if they say to you it's been offered to an idol, don't eat it. Do you see, do you see the nuance that is here? So the implications for a Christian in Pergamum and the Christian in Corinth is there's nothing behind the idol itself. There's nothing wrong with the meat, but don't go to the temples and don't participate in the thing of demons because it has the potential to destroy you and disqualify your faith because there is a demonic power behind it. 
Nice. We made it through. <laughs> I hope you're still with me. Um, nevertheless, this is still a huge implication for the church at Corinth, for the church at Pergamum. Keep that in mind. Not going to temples, this is a huge, huge cost. If you turn back with me to Revelation, with that in mind, what is happening in the church at Revelation is that's one issue, food sacrifice to idols, and the other issue is sexual immorality. Now, how are those two relate? It's interesting, all the way through Scripture, those two things are tied closely together. And there's a sense where when we're unfaithful to God spiritually, we are unfaithful sexually. There's a link there in Scripture. Um, there's also a possibility that this means as uh, referring to the temple prostitutes. So some temples you would go to, and part of worshipping that God is you would sleep with a prostitute there, and that would be part of the worship. I don't think that that's what's talked about here, because there's a suggestion here that this is subtle. This is a church that didn't realize this teaching was coming in. I think if someone came into our church and said that you were able to go sleep with a prostitute, there would be alarm bells ringing. So I don't think it's that. But what the temple did, okay, this is really important. What the temple did is that it made sexual immorality normal. It fueled it. It lowered the barrier to it. It took away the sense that there was something wrong with it. And it undermined the call on our lives to be holy in that area. So as the more and more that you are in the temple, for a business meeting, for a social gathering. Maybe harmless at first, but it undermined your view of sexual purity and eventually to the point where you would think, well, there's nothing wrong with it because that worldview had shaped you. That was the power that the temples had, and I think that's why they are always tied together. What had happened in the church, keep in mind, this is a church that had not denied Jesus and the big thing to the cost of their life. They had not... They'd not left the name of their faith. They'd not disregarded it, but they had teaching coming up in the church that was taking them away from their faith and they didn't even realize it. The Nicolaitans were a group of preachers, um, a group of teaching that went around the churches and it taught the idea that we are free. We are free in Christ, right? We, we have grace. We don't need to be legalistic. They would say, don't be legalistic because that's actually harmful for you. Okay, we've been freed by grace. So why would you go and be legalistic? What does it matter if you go and have a business meeting in the temple? Most people do it out of lip service. They're not actually thinking there's a God behind it. They just do it because it's a part of culture. So don't worry. If you go and do it, there's no harm in that. They were even saying, and this is what um, some scholars think, is that they were saying for the argument of evangelism, you need to actually go to those temples. You need to be in that place so that you can witness because if you're not, you're just going to be completely removed from society. If we put ourselves in this situation, right? You are faced with a teaching where you are going to potentially lose your job, lose your social life, lose your ability to watch entertainment. Huge cost. And then someone comes up in the church and says, hey, that's not actually true. There's freedom. We're not, don't be legalistic. You would jump on that bandwagon very quickly. Um, I've had times where I've been convicted about something and a verse. Um, and you sort of say, God, I know that the verse says this, but is there a way around it? Or is there, a, like, could it be taken this way? And that means I could do it. There's those areas in life where you sort of get that conviction and try to look for a way around it. If you're in the church here at Pergamum and there are teachers rising up saying this, you're going to very easily go with them and not even be aware that they are going to destroy you. Hear Jesus' words here, right? He describes them on the same standing as Balaam who destroyed 24,000 of the Israelites in a single day. He likens them um, 
He says back into the church of Ephesus that he hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He says that he is going to come and wage war against them with a sword in his mouth if they do not repent. Jesus takes this very seriously. We may think that that is a very plausible argument. Jesus comes with strong, strong language to say, I hate this teaching. And I'd say for us that we should listen to what Jesus says there rather than what we think is right. Um, The question, and the key question here is, I have it written down. I just want to get this question right. The, The question is, if I can find it, what is the application in our age? What are the things in our culture, hear this for everyone, what are the things in our culture that undermine our spiritual and moral heart that we as followers of Jesus still engage in that we have got so used to that we do not even think about? I want each one of you to think, and all our situations are different. If you're retired, if you're in high school, if you're in all sorts of different professions, think of this question for your life. What are the things in our culture, in your culture, that you engage with week by week that undermine your spiritual and moral heart and that you as a follower of Jesus still engage in because you've gotten so used to it that you do not even think about it? My hope would be this morning that... um, that each of you would look at your own life and the different things you engage with and start to ask that question of how much do you compromise? How much do you relate to the world? How much do you stand away from it? And take Jesus' serious, uh, teaching here very, very serious in that. So I don't want to bring a lot of suggestions to you this morning. I just want to bring one suggestion that I think will apply to most of us in the church here. And, and if we um, Look at it through the same lens. I don't think it's exactly the same, but it's a very similar issue. And it's in the area of entertainment. The area of entertainment. So if we take the same lens that we've looked at, at food sacrifice to idols and bring it to our culture, I want you to see and ask whether this fits within the same context. So does entertainment, does it undermine our social and moral values? I, I would say yes. If we look at how our social uh, society has changed over the last 50 years, um, I, I don't know, I'm young, but some of you older people, you, you would say that it has changed and would a large driving force behind that be the entertainment world and the values that that is showing that has made values become normal in society that 50 years ago were thought of that wouldn't happen. I'm getting some nods, so I'm assuming that's right. Has it become something we are so used to that we as followers of Jesus still engage in? Yes. All entertainment, huge part of our life, right? Has it, uh, does it make sexual immorality normal? Does it fuel it? Does it lower the barrier to it? Does it take away the sense that there is something wrong with it? And does it undermine the call on our lives to be holy? And I would say yes. And then the last question, is there a spiritual danger behind it? Is there a demonic force behind it? Um, I'd be careful with that question because I wouldn't say that that every movie, every part of entertainment has a demonic force. But as a whole, I would say that there is a a power behind it that poses a spiritual danger for us. So so just to be clear, what I'm not saying is, uh, if we take it literally, that you cannot go to the movies, but if you're in your own home, you can watch whatever you like. Because that may be how you take it directly from food sacrifice to idols. I'm not saying that all movies are bad, all entertainment is bad. That's definitely not what I'm saying. I watch uh, movies. I don't, yeah, I watch some movies. I watch TV shows. I love Survivor. Some of you here may say, well, that's a sin. 
But for me, I think that's fine. I love it. It's not a question of, um, oh, you watch that, that's sinful. You don't watch that, that's, you know, it's not, that's not the issue here. The thing that I'm asking is that you would be discerning with what you watch because some things have a spiritual power behind it and pose a spiritual danger to you. So it's not as black and white as saying, well, I'm just going to chuck away my phone and not be involved in anything. There's room to watch stuff and enjoy that and enjoy the entertainment that's offered. But be very, very discerning on it because what I've noticed uh, in my life is that if I have a time away from watching a lot of entertainment and then I come and watch something and, there, and there's a sexually immoral scene or a, or a slightly scandalous scene in a movie, I'm way more shocked by it. But if I watch that TV show for a couple more weeks, I'll very quickly become, oh yeah, it's just part of the TV show. I'll very quickly become numb to it. And I, what I see is that there's a potential for our standard to keep dropping in that because we just get more and more used to it. So what becomes normal for us is fine that if we took a step back for a month and then came back into it, we might be shocked at what we'd ended up watching. Um, I want to share, share my story here. Um, I, when I was 17, um, I was an intern in this church ah, at, at Word of Life, and I was up here at this church for my first year. Um, I broke my leg in that year and went home to Dunedin to have surgery and, and recover down in Dunedin. Um, and the pastor of my church back home in Dunedin preached a sermon similar to this around the idea of entertainment, and he gave a challenge similar to the one I'm giving you today. And I still remember that sermon as one of the most impactful sermons in my life. Um, at the time, I'd broken my leg, so I was watching a lot more TV than I normally would, right? And I remember he gave this challenge, and I knew that there were a couple of shows that I needed to stop watching, that I had just become, oh, I love the characters, I love the storyline. Yeah, there's a bit of sexual morality in it, but it's just part of it. And I knew, I knew for me that the conviction was I needed to stop watching that. I remember having a similar wrestling match where I was like, oh, Lord, surely there's a way around it. Surely I can do something here. Um, but I acted on that conviction, and what I found is that the next, the start of 2018, so a couple months later, I had the biggest spiritual breakthrough I've had in my life. I had um, a huge, uh, a transformative experience with God then that has set me up for the next years that have followed, that has shaped the way that I pray now and the way that I relate to God, and has shaped my ministry that I'm involved in now. And I would say that that was directly correlated to that decision there to, to sacrifice something and to remove myself away from something for the sake of being holy and for the sake of my relationship with God. And, and I've seen, uh, I, yeah, I don't think that's just an accident there. Um, as I was looking at the sermon, though, I, I realized that over the last few years, there have been times when I've been great at this and times where my discernment has faltered and I've just uh, swung back into watching TV shows that, hey, maybe I shouldn't be watching. So I've even started to re-examine um, what me and Libby watch, what we watch. Um, so, so it's not like the last four years I've just been like, yeah, I've never watched anything. <laughs> like, um, that's not what I'm saying. But I would say that in that moment when I made that conviction and gave that up, themes that were in 1 Corinthians came true for me. So the question that I would ask you is that you would look with real discernment at what you watch, at the entertainment that speaks into your life, be very, very discerning and be very, very willing to not just go along with it because our culture goes along with it, not just go along with it because you're used to it or you enjoy parts of it, but realize that fruit requires sacrifice and that if you sacrifice something for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your own walk with God, God will honor that. There's a call on our lives to be holy. We know that we're to be holy just as he is holy. 
Um, one thing that I would say is true is that if we want to be people who see the Holy Spirit working in our lives, uh, drawing us closer to God, using us in powerful ways here in church, here in the world around us, then we need to be people who take holiness seriously. I want to say that again. If we want to see the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, we need to take holiness seriously because he is the Holy Spirit. And, and so I would say to you that, that entertainment poses a danger to that. And any sacrifice you make in that, that is so worth it for the sake of you being filled with the Holy Spirit, God using you in greater ways, you being holy so that God uses you in greater ways. Um, so my, my challenge here and the thing I don't want you to go away from this thinking is, oh, I'm just not going to watch anything. It's not what I'm saying, but be very discerning in what you watch. Here, the finish, um, if we go to the finish of the letter at Revelation, Jesus says these words, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's some cool imagery here I just want to finish on. Hidden manna um, could be multiple meanings. It could refer to the, the feast that we have in the kingdom of heaven when Christ comes. Um, Jesus himself is described as the manna that's come down from heaven. I think the cool parallel to make here is that you are giving up food sacrifice to idols in this world for something heavenly, something eternal, something of far more worth. And the same is true that if you give up something trivial here in this life for something far more eternal and of greater worth, isn't that so much more worth it? Isn't that so much more worth it? The other imagery here is the image of a white stone. Um, gladiators in those days or athletes would, um, when they were victorious, they were given a white stone with a new name on it and that symbolized their freedom. That symbolized that they were free from the captivity of, of fighting. That's the imagery that Jesus used, that one day we are going to come before Jesus. And if we conquer in this, if we overcome this world, overcome the spiritual forces for evil in this world, he is going to give us a white stone with a new name on it that only we will know that symbolizes our eternal freedom. And don't we want to come before Jesus and him to give us that and say, well done. Again, thinking eternal rather than the trivial things of now. So to leave you, I want to leave you with the two thoughts. First, if you want to see the Holy Spirit working in your life, be people who take holiness seriously and realize the danger that entertainment or anything else poses to that and make the sacrifices you need to make. And the second thing is the verse in 1 Corinthians, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. Remember that. I'd like to pray for us as a church in this. I don't just want to pray because it's the end of a sermon. I want to ask the Spirit of God to be challenging and convicting us. So would you pray with me as I close? Lord Jesus, um, these are your words, Lord. These aren't my words. May this challenge not be my challenge today, Lord, but may it be your challenge to your church here at Hukunui. Pray for all of our hearts in this room, Lord, that we would not have hearts that are closed off to you or hearts which the word that you have spoken to us today is quickly snatched away, Lord. But I ask that your spirit would be convicting each one of us, even bringing to mind areas beyond entertainment or other areas as well where we, we play around with the things of the world or we compromise in certain areas, Lord. Make us a church that of, of people that desire to be holy and to be set apart no matter what the cost is, Lord, to be radically obedient and have a desire to be radically holy, Lord. May you make us a church of those people. And so I ask that in our hearts now, you would be challenging us. Your spirit would be at work. Um, 
And Lord, that if there are sacrifices that we need to make, you would show us that we need to make them, Lord. And you would help us to make them um, no matter what the cost of those are. So I pray for Hukunui right now, Lord. I ask that as your word's gone out, you would, um, you would work through that and you would be convicting every person's heart here today, Lord. Thank you that we are able to listen to your word. Um, thank you that you walk among the churches, Lord. You're amongst us today. You know exactly what we're facing and what we're suffering and the cost that it might cost us, Lord. So please help us where we need help, I pray. Amen. 